Today we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and we're going to be considering the dangers of human judgment. I want to just begin with, uh, with a passage from Matthew uh, chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 4, and these are the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, which is another word for actor, First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I was thinking about a story I shared really briefly when we were last together looking at Romans, the very challenging passage of 124 through 32, but I shared a story of a conversation that I had with my father uh, last year And I remember I asked him as I was trying to get a feel for what he believed, uh, I asked him if he believed in hell. And he said with his usual slightly agitated, raspy nonchalance, yeah, I believe in hell. When I asked why, he said, because I know so many people that should go there. I said, what about you? And he looked at me incredulously and said, Joshua, I am a good person. And that was the end of the conversation. I I didn't disagree with his assessment. I too knew lots of people that should go there, including myself. I never ceased to be amazed at our capacity for self-justification. And I have become more and more convinced of Oswald Chambers' uh, view that one cannot truly understand sin until their eyes have been opened for it does not matter how much light shines if we are blind. See, the issue with human judgment is this, is that when we judge another, we are confronting in a spirit of detachment. We are observing and reflecting from the outside. We have no idea all of the nuances that might be going on that are creating uh, the thing in that person that we want to judge. There's a famous story by Raymond Carver in which a young boy falls on his way to school. It's right before his birthday. His mother has gone in to order a birthday cake for her son with this baker. And then the son falls on the way to school. He ends up in the hospital. He has a brain aneurysm and suddenly dies. The mother and father in their grief forget to call and cancel the order for the birthday cake. And the baker begins to call and harass the home, leaving endless voicemails on the phone, demanding that they come and pay for the cake. And the story just ends with that. This bleak reality that we often are quick to jump to judgments without having the complete picture. You see, when we judge, and this is essentially what my father was doing, we refuse grace in our judgment of others while abusing it in our judgment of ourselves. Let me restate that. (laughs) When we judge another, we are refusing grace. We are putting ourselves actually in a place of superiority. 
We are refusing grace to the one that we judge. And at the same time, we are abusing grace in our own look at ourselves. I am not that person. I am above this person. I had a conversation with a mother and her grown daughter recently, and the mother wanted me to intervene on behalf of her daughter's choices in regards to her relationships. The daughter is divorced. The mother was deeply concerned about it. But what was very clear was that the mother was having a hard time loving her daughter where she was at because she was too busy being concerned with the appearance of evil in her daughter's life and the impact, my read, the impact that it would have on her social circle. And I said to the mom, I said, I don't care if your daughter's shooting up heroin. I don't care what she chooses, she's your daughter. And what she deserves from you always is your love and must we be reminded that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And as we considered even a couple weeks ago, it doesn't mean that we give up our orthodoxy, it doesn't mean that we downplay the reality of sin, but we have to understand that love does not serve justice, justice serves God's love. That God's ability to love us isn't because of the justice that was accomplished on the cross. The cross is the outcome of God's love. We say that the cross is often the cause of God's love. That is a faulty premise. God loved us and therefore he gave. Love is the essence of God's character. But the church has often got this upside down and has done something incredibly damaging. It's the false foundation that has led to incredible cruelty in the church. It is that God is above all things primarily just. And yet you cannot find any place in the Bible to say God is justice. It says that God is love. And justice is the outflow of love violated. And I think that we need to understand this. Justice is but a form and an application of love. It is love in action. It is love when it is true and unselfish, purified of passion, seeking not to please itself, but seeking with keen and unflinching eyes another's good. That's P.T. Forsyth. He said, justice is love producing goodness by mild means or by severe When a man goes wrong, human justice is satisfied with punishing him. Divine justice does not want to punish except as a means of setting him right. Divine justice aims at making the man who is wrong right. Not at punishing him, but it won't hesitate at any punishment needful to make him right. And why? Because divine justice is simply love taking shape and mercy is the truest ultimate justice. God is a consuming fire and will burn clean all that is unlovely in the beloved. I think it's important for us to even keep that in mind as we look at Romans. What did it say? And therefore God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which is unfitting. Revealed wrath, that is God's judgment on sin right now, is God giving people over, but he gives them over. If we were to read Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, it says, give the man over to Satan that 
his body might be destroyed, that his soul might be saved. In other words, put him out of fellowship, that he might experience the consequences of his sin, give him over to it, that it might cause him to turn in repentance back to the the good that God is seeking after him. If I have learned anything in watching my father, I have learned that God is not desiring that any one should perish, and that he is a God that will pursue people all the way to the grave. That he is the God of first and second and third and fourth chances. But there is a point when we must recognize that if we continue to reject God's grace and we choose to continue to put ourselves upon the throne of our hearts, there is a point where we must recognize that we will face God and if we cannot say to him, I am justified because I have put my faith in the one who alone is just, that is your son Jesus, then we have a problem. What Paul is trying to do for us in Romans chapter, chapters one through three is he's trying to establish something that's super important. And when we take small chunks of text, it's very dangerous because we can end up with very false theological constructs. Paul is not going to tell us over the next couple weeks that it is possible to keep the law. And when he says that people will be judged based upon their works, I want us to keep this in mind, is that nobody's works will save them. And so what we have to understand is that Paul is leaving us with nowhere to go. He has gone from from the, the blatant sin that is seen in the pagan world. This is where Paul focuses. And then as the religious listener thinks, that's right, those people, Paul turns the table and says, now let's look at you who think that you are morally upright. And let us consider if you really are what you think you are. And so he begins here in verse one of chapter two, and he tells us why we should not judge. You therefore have no excuse. Isn't this a word that he's always already used? That the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women who suppress the truth and unrighteousness from what may be known of God is manifest to the world. Even his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Even his divine Godhead is seen in creation. Therefore, they are without what? Excuse. And now he uses that word again, but this time he uses it toward the moral person, the religious person. He says, you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. One of the things that I shared with this mom was that the problem is that she was seeing very specific things that her daughter was doing that was wrong. But in judging her daughter, there was a lack of consideration of the possibility that there are many things that she herself were doing that is wrong. And that is the reality of our lives every day. You see, the only thing that we have the right to function in as followers of Jesus is to function in his grace. And grace is always unfair. But when we function in judgment, what we are doing is we are entering into the game of what I call selective sanctification. We have those things that really offend us, but we often are blind to the things that are ultimately problematic when it comes to our character next to God's perfect character. We have, a, we have issue, I mean, this is an example. We, you have a, 
you have a, a, a preacher preaching against, you know, some sort of sexual sin, and yet there's this reality that, that there is hidden pornography in that pastor's life, or some kind of preach against this, but there's still this going on. And this is the hypocrisy that Jesus says is deeply dangerous. And when we begin to recognize that if we are hardest on ourselves and easiest on others, that when we really allow the light of God's truth to actually penetrate our hearts, what we begin to see is that we know how painful it is to have sin dealt with and put away that it creates a posture of humility where we are not judging one another in the church, but we are speaking the truth to one another in love and in grace. That correction is not judgment. It's really, I actually want the absolute best for you. This is why Paul says we are not to judge those outside of the church, but isn't that where we spend most of our time judging? And I think that this is deeply problematic. Why should we not judge? Well, let's just actually ask the question of what does scripture say? I mean, here, Paul says, for whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. We judge the murderer, but Jesus already told us that he who is angry with his brother or sister without cause is a murderer in their hearts. It's very frustrating. He just immediately puts you on the same playing field. I'm like, I'm not as bad as that serial killer. Well, in Jesus' economy, uncontrolled anger is the same as murder. <laughs> That's a really hard word. It shows us the impossibility of the Christian life apart from Christ living it in us and through us. Well, let's see what Jesus has to say. First of all, I would say the reason we are not to judge is because judgment belongs to Jesus alone. In John chapter five, verse 22, it says, for the father judges no one. Listen to that. That even within the Godhead, this triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a community within itself, that we are told that the father has given judgment to the son. Jesus is the one who alone has the right to judge. And what we must remember again and again, is that Jesus is the King of Kings. Yes, he came as the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. He came as the gentle, humble king, the one who served his own disciples and washed their feet, the one who would correct his disciples and even speak firm words to them, but continued, even when Peter was gonna deny the Lord three times, Jesus immediately turns around and instead of judging him for it, he says, but let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He says, because I'm going to prepare a place for you and that place is a place prepared on the cross of Calvary, first of all. And this is why we must understand that judgment has been borne by Jesus. Secondly, it belongs to Jesus alone, but it has been borne by Jesus as well. Verse chapter five, verse 24 of John, it says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. 
That when we put our trust in Christ, what we are trusting in is not only who he is, but also what he has done. And we must remember again and again and again that on the cross of Calvary, Jesus is both the judge and the judged in our place. And when we remember that, we remember that Jesus died for the victim and the victimizer. I often use the example, there are two serial killers that I can think of that are deeply uh, just terrifying. I mean, they haunt the American psyche. And that, that would be Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Bundy. Both men cr- committed heinous crimes. But both men also responded to the gospel before they died. Both men were executed. Ted Bundy was interviewed by Dr. Dobson right before he was executed and he prayed to receive Christ. And I remember it created an uproar among the Christian community because there's like no way that a man that could do these brutal things to all these women could possibly be saved. The same thing was said about Jeffrey Dahmer who who actually Dahmer came to faith early on in his prison sentence and demanded that he be put to death because he believed that that should be the consequence of the crimes that he committed. And he even recognized that there was something demonic over his life when he was killing young men. And the, th- the fact is, is that we have a big problem with that. Yeah, I have to, I've often heard about Christians, I've heard sermons, so many sermons by pastors saying, when I get to heaven, I can't wait to have a conversation with Moses. I'm like, what about Jeffrey Dahmer? Are you pumped to see him? What if Ted Bundy's your best buddy in heaven? How do you feel about that? And you see, we laugh almost nervously. And yet, did Jesus or did he not die for the victim as well as the victimizer? And does not the cross put every one of us, the greatest saint to the greatest sinner, on the same playing field? That all of us, the only way by which we can stand before God and say, I am worthy of eternity with you, is by accepting his son's worth on our behalf. This is what theologians call imputed righteousness. This is why it says, by the law, no flesh shall be saved. This is why we have to understand that when we are quick to pass judgment on others, when we don't understand people, and often judgment flows out of fear. God's judgment is perfect because it serves his love. Our judgment is often driven by a fear of that which is not understood. And this is, this is so problematic because we have been saved by grace alone. And you see, when we become judges as Christians, essentially what we're doing is that it was grace that saved us, but now that we've got you in the church, let me give you law. Let me tell you all the things that you should do and shouldn't do. Because we're not comfortable with grace. We ourselves often do not comprehend it or understand how insane it is that it comes to us as undeserving sinners. The only reason you and I can even say we are saints is because we are sinners saved by our Savior, Jesus. Jesus alone has the right to judge. Jesus has borne the judgment of the world in his own flesh. 
the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And judgment ultimately is just in Jesus alone. This is why he says in John chapter five, verse 30, I can do nothing of my, I, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So I feel like that's a pretty solid argument for why we shouldn't judge. If Jesus says it belongs to me, why are we arguing with him? <laughs> and why are we not paying attention to it? Well, that issue of selective sanctification is, is always at play. It's when we spin our wheels on the peripherals of Christian life and at the same, at the same time ignore the central issue, which is always the heart and why we need to keep our self anchored weekly, daily, moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, the cross. The cross is the great reminder and it is the source of all power in the Christian life because it humbles us as believers and it draws the sinner into the kingdom of God because Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And this is why Paul said, I have determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified because it is by that reality that Paul could say, this is a saying worth remembering that Christ Jesus came into this world to die for sinners of whom I am what? Chief. Secondly, in verses two and three, we see why God will judge. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, you do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? In other words, what, is it, what are we told in the beginning? Now Paul is actually pushing the religious person back to chapter one, the beginning of the letter, and reminding them that they have suppressed the truth just as much as the pagan in whom they are judging. That we, unfortunately, through the fall, have the image of God, but that image is so marred that we are incapable of fully being able to discern what, we're not omnipotent, we're not omniscient, we do not know what is going on in the hearts and the minds of those whom we are called to minister to, but I have yet to see anyone come to faith by me judging them. I have seen hundreds and hundreds of people put their faith in Jesus and have their sin opened up before them and their hearts broken by proclaiming to them the simple statement that we must proclaim to one another every single day. Jesus, on your worst day, is crazy about you. He loves you. And he hates sin because it robs him of what he loves, which is you. And you see, often we can't separate those realities. We hate the behavior, which often leads to a hatred of the one who is behaving that way. And often what we hate in other people is something that is probably more prevalent in us than we like to admit. As I've been writing, working pretty uh, feverishly on, on a book right now, 
I've been writing in great depth about my relationship with my father. And one of the things that I have come to a conclusion is that the, my relationship with him is not merely to be a conduit by which he comes to a saving knowledge of grace, but through our dysfunctional exchanges, we are reminded again and again that we are inextricably linked, that I can't help when I look into the face of my dad, no matter how weathered, no matter how much water retention, no matter how unkept and unclean, no matter how drunk or smoke-filled, I see my face. I see myself in him. I see myself in his behavior. My dad has a blatant disregard for protocol. I had an employee say that to me once. <laughs> my dad does not like boundaries placed upon him. And I always say, I didn't even grow up with him. How did I, why did I get this? And such is the nature of not the sins of our fathers passed down, but this is the sin of humanity. Our problems are everybody's problems. And this is why the solution remains singular for all people. It's Jesus alone. And the reason that he alone can judge is because truth is immovable and we don't know how to function in truth, not fully. Second Corinthians 13, eight says, for we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. The problem is that when we judge, we become the hypocrite and the hypocrite means an actor, one who is not being honest. This is why I always say it's difficult to be honest. It's difficult to be honest because we live with this constant belief that we have to present ourselves to the world in a particular light that isn't necessarily very, very sincere. I have um, been pushing, and when I went and spoke with all the pastors in Albuquerque, I began to talk with them pretty, pretty intensely about, about the fact that we as pastors, if you want to protect yourself against the, the, the reality of pastors burning out, crashing, morally failing, I believe at the root of moral failures among, among clergy is driven by a false belief that I must present to my flock the ideal. But the problem with that is that we are not Jesus. I learned this the hard way and when I went through eight months of anxiety, I went through eight months of anxiety because I looked like a good Anglo Jesus and I think in my mind, even though I would never have admitted it, probably thought that I was somehow the link between God and the people that were coming to the church. And what I found is when I put myself in that position, I could not handle the pressure nor the weight and began to actually unhinge. But that is what sin is. It is centrifugal. It blows everything out from the center. It destroys life when we live in that place of dishonesty, when we pretend to be something that we're not. This is why the only possibility of experiencing the total victory and power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of freedom in our lives is actually being freed from the fear of man so that we can live honestly before God and that happens as we confess our brokenness to one another. And so I shared all kinds of uncomfortable stories with this group of pastors and I saw some of them had faces and I don't think it was because of my gold tooth, but they looked horrified that I was willing to admit. So, Cause I share with them, I said, when I preach, I actually worry about my pants, if people think my pants fit me okay. 
I worry about, I'm, I'm, sometimes I'm even distracted thinking about the show I'm gonna watch tonight when I'm done preaching everything. I sometimes try to run over bicyclists on my way to preach the gospel to people. I get mad at my kids sometimes when they want a hug from me because I'm not done with my spiritual time with Jesus. All of these things remind me again and again that life is mixture. And if you're uncomfortable with the pastor admitting those things, you're not being honest with yourself. Because I am no different. The church is one body and there are many gifts within the body and my gift just happens to be to remind you that we all kind of suck and Jesus is really good. (laughs) And this is why he has the power to judge because he is the truth. And this is something that I think should just encourage your hearts. If it is true that justice serves God's love or his mercy, as Tim Mackey brilliantly speaks of, of God's own words, his proclamation of himself to Moses, that he tips the scales to mercy. Again and again, God tips the scales toward mercy. And if that is true, then we can trust that his judgment will be in accordance to his character. I think for some people, it becomes really upsetting, like, hey, my, I don't know if my, my dad passed away, and I don't know if he ever accepted Jesus. I, I'm worried about the salvation. I mean, listen, we, have, we are called to live with an urgency, and we do not need to play lightly with the gospel, and people really are perishing. And people aren't, aren't just headed toward, toward a reality that they don't want. They are creating that reality right now on earth. And this is why we have to be bold in our willingness to invite people to come to the one who is life, the one who gives life to dead bodies, the one who resurrects and brings hope and says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And we can trust that this king, that his judgment will be in accordance to who he is. Even the final judgment on sin Final judgment, I believe, is an act of God's absolute mercy, for it is a time in which he will say, sin shall go no further. And only a king who is love and all-powerful can do that. His judgment must be true. Revelation 19.2, it says, for true and righteous are his judgments. And why all of us will be judged. What does he say in verse three? So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Jesus said, whoever has placed their faith in me will not experience judgment. And all of us have been judged at the cross of Calvary. This is why the message that we bring to the world is that judgment has been handled. Once and for all, Jesus is the judge and the judged in your behalf. Why would you reject his gracious love that says, I forgive you? Isn't forgiveness the thing that we long for more than anything? Do we not find ourselves like Lady Macbeth who can't seem to get the blood off of her hands? I don't know about you, but when I came to faith, it was actually through the beauty and the kindness of Jesus' words that convicted me and made me feel the depths of my own guilt because that was the thing as I thought to myself, if God knew the things that I have done, if he really knows them, there is no possibility 
I knew, no one needed to tell me that I had violated an unseen law. Nobody needed to tell me that I deserved judgment because God, when he revealed himself to me through his son, exposed me for what I was, a sinner deserving damnation. But instead, what he gave me was the exact opposite, and it was grace. Grace upon grace. Man, the beauty of Jesus. This is why we can't ignore the fact that it has been appointed for us to once die, and after that comes the judgment. The judgment for those that are in Christ has already been dealt with, and this is our standing before God. And this is why we must understand this at the close. Verse four. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? In other words, now Paul is giving us a framework for even God giving people over to their sin. Is that in that there is a kindness, a goodness that is driven by God's deep desire to seek and save that which is lost. How often we take advantage of God's kindness, how often we put off. I used to say that. I had this weird belief that God was real, but I thought in my 20s, I've got so much time, I'm so young, I'm just gonna wait. I, I think, you know, faith is something you do when you get older and have lost your dreams. <laughs> That's kind of what I thought. I'm like, you got to live hard, you got to live free, and you got to live without parameters. But I recognize that someday I'm probably going to need God or Jesus or Buddha or something, but not right now. But what we need to understand is that we are experiencing in this age of grace and in the life that we live and every moment of every day is a gift one of the great signs that we are not okay with God, I spoke a couple weeks, several weeks ago, is our lack of gratitude. And they, we should have incredible gratitude. And here, Paul is saying, in fact, you're not having joy, you're not being humble, you're not, you're not grateful for what you have in Jesus. Instead, you are judging people because you yourself are unhappy. You yourself are detached from the one who has taken judgment into himself. And he is giving a strong warning that the most dangerous place to be is the religious person who thinks they can earn their way to God. For this is the very warning that Jesus gives in, in Matthew chapter seven. He says, many will come to me in the last day and they will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that in your name? We cast out demons in your name. We did many signs and wonders in your name. And Jesus never denies that they did all kinds of things in his name. And his great and terrifying rebuke, the most horrifying words that you and I could ever hear from the lips of the king of kings is away from me, I never knew you. The essence of eternal life, the essence of what it means to be saved is to be put back in a right relationship with God and to be conduits of his grace. As we receive his grace, you cannot say you love Jesus and follow Jesus and not actually receive into yourself the love of the Holy Spirit, which actually doesn't just give us the ability to love God. It's you aren't loving God if it isn't also at the exact same time teaching you to love the unlovable, to have faith 
for the faithless, to have hope for the hopeless. Because you can't say, I love Jesus, and then walk by the homeless person on the street and not care. You can't not care about your mother or father, if they're like mine, who's drinking themselves to death in some remote part of the country. You can't say, I love Jesus, and continue to act as if he doesn't love anyone else. Because he loves the worst of people. And you should always be quick to say, that might be me. I believe that the closer and the more intensely and intimately we walk with Christ, I do not feel that I have become more and more enlightened, more and more sinless. I just become more aware of my sin, which causes me to cast myself even more desperately at the feet of Jesus. And it is there that there is real power. That is where the saving life of Christ begins to manifest itself in a holiness that's not driven by an attempt to be morally perfect, but it's a holiness that comes from a person who's in proximity to the only one who is holy. This is why I wrote that song, Lord, I am like the moon, without the sun I hang in darkness too. We are secondary light. We shine his light. And the closer we are to him, the more brightly we shine. And this is why we must love. We must function in his goodness. We must be reflections of his kindness. We have to, be for, we have to function in forbearance and patience, which literally means toleration, <laughs> that God tolerates sin and rebellion because the scales tip toward mercy. He won't tolerate it forever, but in this age of grace, I see that. My dad, I tell him, life is short. It has been appointed once for us to live and die, and then comes the judgment. But in this age, I see continually reflected, even toward my own father, a forbearance, a patience. And as I trust in Jesus' patience, toward my dad, it gives me patience for my dad. And I would encourage that in your marriages and with your children, is that are you reflecting that kind of belief? Love believes all things, hopes all things, love lasts. Do, are you, have you lost your patience with your spouse or with your kids or with your parents or with your coworkers? Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't treat you that way? That he continually pours out patiently his grace toward you, freely offering it, saying the same thing, receive it. Don't earn it, you can't. The wages of sin is death. That's what we get when we work for salvation. We get paid, and what we get paid with is death. But the gospel is a gift, and a gift must be received. And the gift is life, and life abundant. God's kindness is meant to change us, not leave us the same. It is meant to move us toward repentance. And repentance really, friends, is one of the most beautiful words in the scripture. And I wanna just close right now by asking you the simple question. Do you really believe in your heart that mercy is greater than judgment? And if you don't, let me just read you a verse. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Oh, so that wasn't me just throwing an idea. That was actually James, 
a book that has often been critiqued for being a book that contradicts Paul, saying that it's driven by works, not faith, but that's not what James is trying to get at. James is trying to show us that true faith is a faith that works. It allows Christ to be Christ in us and through us. And he says it here, mercy triumphs over judgment. Does mercy triumph over judgment in your life? Do you believe the best? Love believes all things, hopes all things. These are the treasures of the abundant life and they are not to be despised but exhibited in our lives. Are we a people that reflect the kindness, forbearance, and patience of God, recognizing that it is kindness that draws people to a place of repentance? Remember, repentance is going from one way to another. It's a change of directions. It's a change of mind. I was putting myself upon the throne of my heart. Now I place King Jesus upon the throne of my heart. A repentance is not just I'm sorry. Repentance is I am changing direction. I'm going from being one who judges to recognizing that Jesus has taken judgment into himself and has graciously given me love and life and I know what it's like to be forgiven. I know what, how painful it is to pull the plank out of my own eye. Therefore, I will deal gently and tread lightly with my brother and sister. I will believe the best for them. I will hope all things, believe all things. Love never fails. And the only tangible evidence that you and I are even Christians is in how we love not how we judge. This is the gospel. Amen? Let's pray.